Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Jeff White, who's an investigative journalist and has published a couple books related to cybercrime. He, uh, I think his first book or one of the earlier books was Crime.com, From Viruses to Vote Rigging, How Hacking uh, Went Global. And his most recent book, The Lazarus Heist, From Hollywood to High Finance, Inside North Korea's Global Cyber Warfare. We're going to be talking to Jeff about his books and some of the latest, greatest activities that these uh, state-organized cyber hacker groups are uh, are up to. But first off, let's welcome Jeff. Jeff, how are you today? I'm good, Mark. How are you? Pretty good. Um, where do we find you at today? Uh, I'm London, North London based. Yeah. How are things there? All right, but a bit grey. We've we've had our bank holiday weekend, our jubilee weekend, which was full of sun and bunting and Union Jacks and stuff. And now it's just a grey Monday. So I think everybody's come down to earth with a bit of a bump today, unfortunately. Yeah, we have we here here in Seattle, we've had the wettest uh, May on record, and I think we're on track for the wettest June. I mean, it's nice. just it's it's amazing. So um, I think we can probably compare um, the <laughs> yeah comparable climates. So um, I got to ask you. I mean, uh, do you you know you you've written about these uh, these different organizations around the world. Are you able to do most of your research from from the UK, or do you uh, do, do you have to get out and about and, and talk to people around the world? A lot of it you can do from the UK. I mean, obviously the advantage. Uh, of writing a book um, is that you, unlike working for TV and, and film and so on, you don't have to necessarily go and see people. Um, so you can do quite a lot of it from 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 home and from the UK. However, there are just certain instances where you, you have to go there. You have to actually see what's going on. You have to meet the people. You have to look at the locations. So some of the stories that I've covered in the Lazarus Heist book particularly took place in the Philippines. So I went out to the Philippines to sort of see the geography of that and to meet the people who are actually involved. So it's it's always good. It's always good to get FaceTime with people and get you get your boots on the ground. I think that makes a lot of sense. I I would imagine that I mean, a lot of people would be kind of reluctant to talk. Um, and how do you you know how do you find people that um, are one credible and two mm. you know willing to kind of share what they know with you? Yeah, well, it's a really good question, and it's good that you pointed out the difference. So there are lots of people who want to talk but don't know anything, and lots of people who know a lot of things but don't want to talk. <laughs> and so you're looking for the sort of sweet spot between the two, really. Um, you know, the, the ability to try and track people down and convince them to talk is is basically one of the major tasks for me as an investigative journalist. I mean, getting the story, getting the facts straight, understanding it is one thing. But particularly for podcasts, which I've done and, and for the book, you want to hear from for the first hand sources. You want to hear from the person who was in the room at the time. Um, and so for me, there's a lot of reading legal documents. There's a lot of reading technical reports. There's a lot of reading other people's blogs and listening to other people's podcasts and books and so on. Um, but then fundamentally, it's like working out, OK, who can tell this? What is the story? What are the components of that story? It needs to be something that, you know, is an event that happened somewhere in the world. And there was an ABC, you know, this happened and then that happened and then that happened. And then the question after that is, OK, I've got the story. I, I know what happened. I understand it. Who can I get to, to tell me and, and the readers and listeners and viewers what, what actually happened at that time? Yeah, it seems like it would be, yeah, I mean, you're definitely a, a one part detective, one part journalist, and uh, and then you're putting together this uh, this amazing puzzle. Um, why don't you, um, I, I mean, before we talk about the Lazarus heist, maybe you can talk about uh, some of the, 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 the main or major hacks that you covered in uh, crime.com 
and mm. just kind of gives, you know, so that you set the stage in terms of the, you know, how did these these organizations emerge and, you know, and, and, and then how have their activities, you know, kind of changed over the last 15, 20 years? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, crime.com, the idea of that first book was really to map out as much as I could the territory of cybercrime. I really was aiming for people who, I was aiming for people who had no knowledge in the space at all, that they would be able to read it and understand it and, and enjoy it or at least find it compelling. But what I also hoped was that people who were in the industry would at least, you know, see that I hadn't got anything wrong and hopefully find out a few tidbits of information that, that weren't previously in the public domain. So what I did was traced computer hacking from the very earliest origins, from its sort of birth in the, the sort of hippie hacker movement, really, of the, of the 70s, and traced it all the way through, through things like the fall of the Berlin Wall, which had a huge impact, I think, on the emergence of cybercrime. Um, how, how, how so? Well, you've got to realise that the Soviet Union, like a lot of communist countries, valued technical and scientific knowledge above many, many other subjects. There were more science and, and engineering grads going through Russian universities in the 90s than there were any other subject put together. It was absolutely astonishing. And, and these people were going into, you know, scientific and technical jobs within the Soviet Union. That the, the, the early 90s come, the Soviet Union collapses. A lot of those people were just out of a job. There wasn't the industry. that at, at the time, the world was booming in terms of information technology and it was taking off. Russia was being left behind and a small but significant minority of people within the former Soviet Union took to cybercrime. They already had you know, worked out how credit card theft worked and there was a huge credit card fraud scene. And as those credit cards started being used for online purchases, uh, those crime gangs simply started turning to online means. They, they followed the money uh, online and that happened throughout the course of Internet banking as well when Internet banking took off in the early noughties. So that fall of the Soviet Union really was a sort of key turning point. But what's interesting is a lot of this is about, you know, acquisitive crime. It's basically about getting money, isn't it? Um, yeah. But, but the the real turning point for me is when you start to see governments getting interested in computer hacking and realising that computer hacking is A, cheap compared to, you know, buying tanks and guns and missiles, and B, gives them palpable deniability. It's very, very easy to hide in cyberspace and to, to carry out attacks that are very hard to attribute. And so the sort of culmination, if you like, of crime.com really was the, the 2016 US presidential election, where I think we saw the kind of, so far, I think we saw the high tide mark, as it stands, of, of organized cybercrime tactics being used by nation state hackers to, to, to upend an election uh, and to right. dis disrupt it, I think is a fair way of putting it. Uh, so a really remarkable moment. That was the, the journey that crime.com sort of went on. Yeah, I'd like to come back to that um, a little bit later in terms of, you know, these non-monetary kind of uh, cyber activities, mm. because, you know, there, there's an argument right now that um, social media is being manipulated by um, certain actors to kind of sow mm. discord in, in maybe not just the U.S., uh, but maybe in different places around the world. Right. And mm. I'd, I'd, I'd kind of like to get your opinion on on what you know, what we see going forward with that. And I, I, you know, and I'm also assuming that um, even you know the U.S. government is probably not doesn't have um, perfectly clean hands. Uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> we may be doing some things as well. And I'd like to, I'd like to come back mm. to that. But let's go ahead and then jump over before that though, to because it looks like Lazarus Heist is a, a, a very specific um, story. Whereas in Crime.com, you 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 know you talked about mm. some you know major events and kind of the evolution of 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 these nation state actors. Um, what's the, uh, the the general premise of the Lazarus Heist? Well, the Lazarus Heist grew out of crime.com in a really interesting way. There's one of the chapters of crime.com was about North Korea and how North Korea became a sort of cyber cyber threat of its own right. 
and one of the interesting things about that chapter was North Korea, for various reasons we can we can talk about, basically run out of money, very, very short of money. And so what it was doing was using the sort of government hacking tactics that a lot of countries use, pretty much all countries these days, but applying them to a sort of organised cybercrime acquisitive theft model is the accusation. So, you know, in terms of that coalition and collaboration between government hackers and organised cybercrime, I felt North Korea was really, you know, the apex of that. And the chapter revolved around this remarkable story of, of the attack uh, by the Lazarus Group, allegedly working on behalf of the North Korean government on the Bank of Bangladesh, the central bank of that country, and the attempted theft of a billion dollars, um, which became a, a BBC podcast. It was a 10-part podcast series, which was put out last year in 2021. Um, and that podcast series has now given birth to the, the book, of The Lazarus Heist, because series one of the podcast sort of stops in, in 2017 with the, the WannaCry cyber attack. And yeah, there's been five years of subsequent cyber activity by the Lazarus Group to cover. And so the book really tries to bring that story up to date uh, uh, and, and really fill in the gaps. And there were some absolute jaw-dropping stories. I mean, if you thought the Bangladesh Bank story was crazy, it, it gets even more bonkers, <laughs> frankly, in the, in the subsequent years. Well, and then, so what can you tell us, without giving too much away, um, about you know, the more of the the content of the book and also, mm. um, you know, this Lazarus group. I mean, what do we know about it? Is it just, is it a, mm. is it a, a formal organization or is it, a, mm. a, you know, a, a loose group of people who, you know, work with the North Koreans? Is it actual people in North Korea? What is it? Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. I mean, one thing that's worth getting straight, first of all, is, is North Korean hacking is really interesting because if you think about hacking in the US, for example, or hacking in the UK, well, that could be government hackers. Um, it could be organized criminals. It could be some kid in their bedroom, you know, who's picked up a computer and looked on hack forums and started going. And there's lots of different types of what hacking could be. If you're in North Korea and you have a computer and an Internet connection, it's because you've been given it by the government. The only computer hacking really that can exist in North Korea is government sanctioned, government endorsed hacking. Um, it's not possible for an individual to pick up a computer and sort of start doing it. So when we see computer hacking coming out of North Korea and attributed to North Korea, the assumption is it's got to be government sanctioned at the very least, if not government controlled uh, and endorsed. And so this has led people to look at the different hacks that have been attributed to North Korea. And I will say, I use the Lazarus Group as a, as a slightly lazy journalistic shorthand to describe you know, computer hackers working for the North Korean government. If you read reports, you know, I, th I think CrowdStrike put out a report fairly uh, fairly recently, I think it might have been Fire actually, who put out the report talking about different types of North Korean hackers. There are lots of different groups. And because North Korea is a militaristic society, most of those computer hackers will be embedded somewhere in the military. They will have a rank. They will be taken into military bases to do the hacking. So, so it, will, it will come out of North Korea's military. And lots of people sort of read the tea leaves about, you know, this particular group being part of this particular unit of the army and that particular group being part of another bit of the military services. For me, that that's not very helpful. I just I just call it the Lazarus Group as a sort of lump term because I don't think it's massively helpful uh, uh, for readers. But yeah, this is the, the the idea that they're working on behalf of the North Korean government. They're part of North Korea's military and they're mainly working from inside North Korea, although there's evidence with, with people we spoke to for the podcast and also spoke to for the book that um, the computer hackers from North Korea are sent outside the country's borders for good reasons. You know, if you're hacking from inside North Korea, you're a target for surveillance and North Korea has a very narrow window to the Internet. So hacking from outside North Korea makes a lot of sense. And also you can hide among the crowd. You know, China, for example, has billions of IP addresses. 
billions of, of computer users. You know, if, if you're trying to hack from inside China, you, you, you can hide within the crowd a lot more effectively than you can from North Korea with its its tiny number of Internet users. Makes, makes a lot of sense. So, um, you know, one of the things I, I actually I don't know if you've been to Korea or, or spent any time there, but um, I, I've been I've lived there off and on for maybe about five years, um, starting mm. in the early 90s. And and so, you know, North Korea's activities are kind of always on, on my radar. I've also lived in Japan and North Korea and Japan have a kind of a special relationship as well. Mm. Mm. Um, and North Korea, is, you know, they're always looking for ways to to make money, not necessarily to disrupt elections. I would say what I've seen, mm. you know, they have their little propaganda wars with South Korea and they they, you know, hurl insults at the U.S., but <laughs> it seems to be most of their, a lot of their activities, whether it's, you know, um, selling drugs, um, importing, exporting arms, uh, mm. you know, it's it's all basically um, in an effort to to make money. Um, and I, I'm wondering, what, you know, in terms of the, their cyber activities, is it is it mostly geared towards uh, to to getting money back to uh, to the dear leader? The, the that is definitely a very large focus for North Korea's computer hackers from what we know of their activities. Um, I mean, I've mentioned the attack on Bangladesh Bank, the attempted theft of a billion dollars. They only got $81 million out of Bangladesh Bank in the end. And the story only. of how they tried only, <laughs> yes, still, still a lot of money for a country that's this buys, a, buys a lot of kimchi up there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or cognac, cognac is apparently cognac, the favorite, yeah, right. Tipple of Kim Jong un. <laughs> And his cadre. Um, so look, you know, they only got 81 million, as, as you say, it's still a lot of money. But I mean, compared to the other attacks that they, they launched on other banks, you know, that pales into into insignificance. And then the, 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 the latest trend has been to target cryptocurrency companies. So Bitcoin exchanges and the like, and um, the amount estimated to have been stolen from those attacks. And this is this is a vast understatement, I should say, a vast underestimate is two billion dollars. Uh, so there's a huge amount of money uh, going into North Korea. We don't know. I get asked every now and again, how much does that take? How much of North Korea's GDP would that be? Very difficult to say because you know, North Korea doesn't really put out figures on its GDP. And so the estimates are quite hard to come by. But but two billion dollars is a lot of money. Um, they are doing other types of computer hacking. And there's been attributed attacks for the North Korea of trying to get into defense companies, get into diplomats, get into embassies, the usual type of stuff. And frankly, look, the US, the UK, we do that stuff as well. Let's not lie. We, you know, we are trying to break into other people's systems for strategic advantage. So, yes, North Korea do all of that. But what marks them out on the world stage, really, for the researchers who track them, is, is these very high profile and very, very lucrative attacks on the financial system. And I say increasingly the cryptocurrency system. Well, and I was going to ask you about that in terms of, you know, crypto as a target, but also as a uh, kind of a, a facilitating, you know, mm. aspect of cyber cyber um, attacks. What what are you seeing? Um, well, it's very interesting. There's been a, a spree of attacks um, culminating, really, or at least culminating so far. It may even get get bigger than this. But it, with this year's attack, uh, 2022, on a game called Axie Infinity, a video game. Um, based in Vietnam, headquartered in Vietnam. Um, it's a bizarre story. I mean, video game, to be honest, I'd never heard of Axie Infinity. Um, but it's, it's a video game that's based on a sort of cryptocurrency-esque attribute. Uh, basically, you can buy characters in the game, buy and sell them. And, and that trading activity is very, very febrile. A lot of people putting their money into these little characters in the game. Uh, and so in order to facilitate all those cryptocurrency payments, the game had to have a sort of cryptocurrency arm, effectively, a thing called the mm -hmm. Ronin Bridge. And that was what the computer hackers targeted. And they managed to make off with $625 million. 
which oh gosh. Uh, and I've been saying this before and I'm, not, I'm you know I'm I'm willing to be proven wrong on this but I think that is the largest amount of money stolen from a single target in a single hack ever the, the, the other groups have stolen more money over time from different targets but one hit one victim one amount I think 625 million is is the biggest we've ever seen and that's all in cryptocurrency and has been made off with apparently by Lazarus group so so people were playing this game somehow they were um, giving their payment information whether that's a, a was a crypto um some type of a crypt, cryptocurrency or a credit card or something mm. like that and they were able to get in between there and siphon off is that was that basically what happened as i understand it the way it works is this if you if you sign up to axie infinity um it's a little bit like you know you know the old tamagotchi things those little uh, yeah, creatures you just have to try and keep up yeah yeah. It's a bit like Tamagotchi meets WWF wrestling in that you can buy you can buy one of these axes, which is all creatures, um, and you 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 pay for that using cryptocurrency. You can then, as you train your tam your, your little Tamagotchi, your little axe, and it gets better, you can then sell it to other people, and those trades are obviously conducted in, in through cryptocurrency, gotcha. and so those trades are recorded. Now. What they wanted to use was um, the Ethereum blockchain, which is a sort of cryptocurrency way of keeping a record of all the transactions. Mm -hmm. Problem is the Ethereum blockchain moves a little too slowly for the frenetic activity that was going on in the game. So what they needed was some way to, to take the transactions that happened in the game and stick them on the Ethereum blockchain where they could be recorded publicly. And the thing they did, the conduit they used from the game to the Ethereum blockchain was a thing called the Ronin Bridge, which took the stuff that happened in the game and stuck it on the Ethereum blockchain for all to see. The Ronin Bridge was what the hackers targeted. When I say the Ronin Bridge, what this comes down to is it's about a dozen computers around the world that basically took the transactions in the game and stuck them on the Ethereum blockchain. If you can take over enough of those computers, you can divert the funds that should be going to the players and to their, and to their accounts and to the game, and you can divert them elsewhere. And that's what the hackers did. They took over just enough of those computers, the Ronin Bridge computers, to divert the funds away. And as I say, $625 million later, we, we suddenly realize what's what's happened. Astonishing, yeah. absolutely astonishing hack. Amazing, right? And just another reason kids should not be playing video games, man. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yes, uh, go out and go out. And no, play you can't have my credit yet. card. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's crazy. So um, let me ask you, uh, you know, from what you see, because, you know, we, we typically hear about, you know, those those darn North Koreans or the, the Russians or the mm -hmm. Chinese. Um, is there much of a difference between, you know, their their methods and their targets? Um, yes, I mean, I think it's possible to still to distinguish between between those different countries. And, you know, let's face it, the other countries hack as well, you know. France, Sri Lanka, Brazil, the US, the UK, you know, the, 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 the US government does? level. Come on. Oh, yes. <laughs> Surely not. Surely not. But look, I mean, it, it's, I think there are distinguishing features between them. And what I would say is, I say, we've already talked about why North Korea is distinctive, this, this sort of search for money to top up the government's coffers. China generally um, is very good at not getting caught. I will be honest, I haven't done a huge amount of coverage on Chinese hacking. And it's not because I don't want to, or because it doesn't happen. It's because they're very, very, very stealthy. And so getting a case where you really know what happened and where somebody's published enough information for me as a journalist to look into it with Chinese cases is quite difficult. Um, Russia, by contrast, um, parts of the Russian cybercrime um, economy are, are very well known. We have leaks from inside some of these cybercrime gangs. Some of the government hackers inside Russia have had a very bad history of, of, of 
not covering their tracks particularly well. Um, one thing I, th I think is interesting, I'm just going to the point you were making earlier about disinformation and so on, is, is I tend to find um, some of the Russian stuff and the disinformation and manipulation stuff really interesting. And I think one thing we have to remember about Russia is that, you know, under the Soviet Union, there was a great deal of disinformation. I mean, the stuff the state was putting out was to a lot of the people who lived in the Soviet Union completely unbelievable. So they had to do this double think thing of, of believing the government propaganda and trotting it out when they needed to, but knowing that it was all bullshit. And that ability to think on two different levels and to to, to play with the truth and to, and to acknowledge that there isn't really any ground truth or to, to hold two truths that are opposed simultaneously is something that's I feel ingrained in the Russian psyche, but isn't ingrained in our psyche in the West, because we, we're told, well, there's one truth and here it is. Now, that's 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 fascinating. And it's it's, it, you know, having having lived in different countries um, for many years, it's amazing how much a culture can affect, you know, the the end results or the behaviors and the outcomes in, in, in what you're talking mm. about. I mean, obviously, North Korea, they're, they're very much focused. I mean, obviously, it's a super poor country. They're focused on making money. The uh, the Russians, because of their history, have this ability, as you just say, to, to, to think on a couple different levels and and uh, and kind of tease out what's real, what's not. And yeah, in America, we have the party line and it's given by Anthony Fauci. And if you <laughs> if you if you dare think anything otherwise, then you're 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 you know, what do they say against us with us or against us and mm -hmm. obviously against. So that's that's very interesting. Um, do you see any other countries kind of emerging as growing cyber? I mean, you, you know, you, you get the Nigerian scam emails mm -hmm. you get. Um, but do, what, what, are, what are you seeing in terms of other emerging threats? It's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, to be honest, I have my hands full mainly with North Korea and Russia yeah. at the moment. Um, but, but the other one that's interestingly that's that's often listed in the top four, certainly in the UK, is Iran. Um, and again, it's it's a really interesting um, picture, I think. And again, culturally, you can look at that as different factors. I'm by no means an Iranian expert, but again, you know, a country that that values scientific prowess, that values technical knowledge, um, a country that has been pushed out of the world and is, is increasingly pariah on the world stage. Um, yeah, a country that has a, a you know, a, a very sort of youthful outlook and, and a very quite a go-getting outlook um, and obviously, you know, has a very nationalistic element to it. So I find the Iranian picture quite interesting. Some of their campaigns have been have been really fascinating, I think. Interesting. Um, but back to North Korea. Have you actually ever been to uh, to North Korea? I have not. And given what I've just been up to and the stuff I put out, probably not going to get an invite. Signs point soon. to no for that. <laughs> no. If you do get an invite, it's probably a one way ticket and I wouldn't take it. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. But I have to I mean, you know, I have to say there may come a time. I'm still not sure how this would happen, where the regime comes to an end, uh, where North Korea's 25, 26 million people are, are, are liberated or at least at least live under a far less authoritarian rule. And I will be on the first plane out at that point because I, I, I've heard so much about this country. I, I yearn to see it uh, and would love it, to see it. It's amazing that the, uh, the the regime has lasted so long. Mm. And, and you know, here's my opinion from, you know, the cheap seats is that North Korea is a con they're, they're convenient. Um, mm. the, Ch the Chinese and the Russians, they like having North Korea there because it's mm. a it's a it's a buffer. Even internally in China, I don't know if, uh, you know, I think there are, what, 37 different ethnic groups. And China, you know, China from the outside looks like, oh, this, you know, monolithic you know, China. It's, and But one of their biggest issues is they have all these different ethnic groups. Mm. For Throughout China history, um, that what, you know, 
they've had many times where the you know the, the country was divided into multiple different groups uh, regions um, ongoing warfare and you know they're, they're very much focused on bringing everything together but they had these internal pressures one of which is there's a huge ethnic Korean population in obviously it goes from North Korea but into northern China and mm -hmm. When you meet people from that region and you ask them, are you Chinese? Are you Korean? And they they consider themselves to be ethnically Korean. And that takes they, that takes prominence over their their national, you know, uh, affiliation with China. So they definitely feel more Korean than Chinese ethnically. And, and even even they feel like uh, the people I've spoken to feel more loyal or connected with their ethnicity or that group than the um, the, than the PRC. Um, so, so yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and if you talk to South Koreans, um, they will talk about the glory days when, you know, Korea, North Korea, South Korea, and that Northern China, uh, part, uh, was all connected mm. and, and some yeah. people envision and hope for that unification. But I can tell you this Japanese aren't, you know, they're, they're not looking forward to that day. Um, because then you've mm. got a, a nation of a hundred million Koreans, uh, and, and the, in the, in the Chinese obviously do, do not want to see part of their country peel off. So, so North Korea kind of, ser it serves a, a, a very nice mm. purpose, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. No, it's interesting. It's, it's a very good point. I hadn't fully clocked the, the it makes perfect sense. Actually, there would be a huge Korean diaspora in, in China. Um, and also from that perspective, obviously, China's policy towards North Korea, which is a sort of weird push me pull you policy, sometimes supportive, sometimes less supportive. Obviously, what China is also thinking about strategically and inside its own borders is if we go up against North Korea and if we if we sway against them, how's that going to go for the people inside China who identify, as you say, strongly with Korea? Is that going to annoy them? Is that going to cause us problems? I mean, the Japan the Japan example is really fascinating. And again, before working on the podcast and, and my co-host on the podcast, Gene Lee, who was a journalist in North Korea for many years, um, really filled in a lot of these gaps for, for me in my sort of North Korean knowledge. This idea of um, the Korean diaspora in Japan and the idea that Japan's got a, a huge um, Korean, ethnic Korean population who, again, as you say, would identify very much as, as, as Korean. And interestingly, those people date from before when North and South Korea were divided, you know, when, before the country was divided into North and South Korea. So they went over to Japan in the maybe 30s or 40s or whatever, were Korean, 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 because there wasn't North and South at that point. Then suddenly their home country gets divided into North and South. They're in Japan looking back and thinking, well, now do I side with the North? Do I side with the South? There's a bit of both. So the, the whole North Korea is a sort of um, key cog in this whole region. You know, in, in a if you look at a watch or a clock, you'll have some tiny cog somewhere that you yeah. look at and you think, if that cog stops, it screws the whole, no matter that the other cogs are bigger, it doesn't matter. That tiny cog is actually turning a lot of the other ones. Fascinating. No, no, it's, it's a really good observation. And the the situation in Japan is interesting because you, having lived there for five or six years and also, you know, have, having worked in Korea, a lot of things are on my radar and um, related to this topic. And uh, most of the Korean schools in Japan. So, you know, you have like the French school, the, mm. you know, the, the British school, the American school. So all your expats would go there, but the Korean schools were founded by, uh, people from, and who are loyal to North Korea. When I say from, as you said, there was no North or South then, but they were mm. actually from that part of Korea. Um, and when, after the Korean war up and up until even well recently, even now, um, uh, these organizations uh, would you know they they have their North Korean community 
they would raise money or still do raise money and send it back to North Korea. There's actually some, an amazing movie about a family, uh, a, a Korean Japanese family in the late 60s uh, who send their son to North Korea mm. because they think mm. that's the right thing to do. Um, and then the kid can, the poor kid can never come and visit. Finally, yeah. he gets to come visit, uh, but they tell him, you know, he's got uh, he's got cancer and he could get treated in Japan. But the government, the North Korean government is like, no, he's got to come back. And if he doesn't come back because mm -hmm. he has a, at this point, he has his own family in North Korea and there's mm -hmm. all kinds of threats. And it's, it's based on one of many of the similar true, true stories. So it's a it's a very interesting um, you know observation that you just made there. There are also a lot of Koreans in Japan who who immigrated over the last you know 40 50 years who are actually also from South Korea. And so mm -hmm. you do you get this kind of um, you know this you know uh, I guess vibe that oh no no those are the those are the guys from the north and they're they're mm -hmm. still they're very very tr super traditional where the people from the south you know, tend to be, because the South is obviously opened up, um, it, it, very different, you know, they're both Korean, but very different outlooks, different cultures. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, yeah, very interesting. Um, what, what should our governments be doing or what should organizations be doing to kind of protect themselves or just, to, you know, to be aware mm -hmm. of what the threats are, and it's specifically with North Korea, but maybe some of the other nation state actors? Yeah, it's interesting. I think there's on three three levels that there's what we as individuals can do, because the the reality of this is there is this is one of these classic threats we face at the moment as a civilization. It's like climate change. You know, there's no a government can't do anything about it completely because because governments can't work on that kind of global level. It's up to each of us individually, unfortunately, to solve some of these global problems or at least to help solve some of these global problems and computer hacking is one of them you know it's a global threat so you know we have to take a bit of individual responsibility the good news about that is the vast majority the vast vast majority as well you'll know of these computer hacking threats come through email if you look and we've mentioned bangladesh bank already we've mentioned these cryptocurrency exchanges i cannot tell you how often it is that the email is the way in and it's the attachment to the email that, that syncs you. You know, you open the attachment, that's where the virus is. So if you want one lesson, you know, the, the simple, easy tip, uh, as they say on the internet, to get rid of this stuff, look at your emails really carefully and attachments be super, super, super careful with. And that's what we can all do as sort of individuals. As organizations, um, I mean, there's lots of good stuff organizations can do. Again, educating their staff about emails, you know, making them aware of the consequences. Look, you click that email. You know, we give you a monthly paycheck, but if this company doesn't <laughs> exist because because we get hacked, you know, into destruction, uh, we're not going to pay you. Um, but also organizations can do good stuff like um, instituting multi-factor authentication, as they call it. So you get a text message on your phone when you log in somewhere. Trying to segment your data as well and trying to work out, OK, if they get in through that bit, let's make sure they can't just, you know, travel across our network computer to computer and get to this bit over here because that's you know really juicy stuff and also frankly do you need to hang on to all this data the less data you have the easier it's going to be to encrypt it and to work out where it all is but also the less of a target you are for computer hackers so i think getting rid of a lot of this data and it's heresy in this age you know data being the new oil but data also makes you a target for computer hackers and at a sort of national level you know in terms of governments we have seen efforts by governments to, to work on cybercrime to work on cybersecurity. there are collaborations and so on um and we've seen some good stuff in that direction i think Continuing conversations, particularly by law enforcement, you know, cops getting to know each other at international conferences is good. I think there need to be more international conferences with countries at an international level. United Nations maybe needs to do a bit more on this kind of stuff. Um, but it's that's going to be slowly, slowly. That's a gradual thing, but it, it needs to happen.
That was excellent. I just moderated a, a webinar specifically on this topic uh, last week, and the webinar went on for almost an hour, and you just basically summarized some of the key best practices there in, in about two minutes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's excellent. I, I mean, one is like you just said, I mean, being aware uh, of these business email compromise you know, attempts, mm. you know, running phishing awareness campaigns, sometimes simulated phishing uh, attacks, uh, second factor or multi-factor authentication, data, good, good data governance. And yeah, I, I do like the analogy because people say, yeah, data is the new oil or gold or whatever, but it's also, you know, hazardous waste. So, um, you know, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's toxic get, get, waste. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, that's that's some some pretty darn good advice. Um, where do you see this this, you know, this threat specifically from North Korea? Do you see any kind of concerted activity from other governments to take away their resources? Or is it just mm. something that, uh, you know, we as individuals and, and as organizations are going to have to protect ourselves? It, it's a good question. I mean, look, the, the shortcut answer that, yes, we are going to have to protect ourselves. But there have been some efforts to, to considerable efforts, actually, to, to hit North Korea as it's risen up the sort of cybersecurity agenda. You know, the victims and the targets, notably the US, have tried to hit back. The problem is, um, in terms of actually putting people behind bars, North Korea does not, <laughs> as far as I'm aware, have an extradition tr treaty with anybody. So, you know, the right. US can charge people and have charged people, notably a character called Pat Jin Hyok, who's allegedly a member of the, the Lazarus Group hacking team. You know, the US government has, has charged him. They put his photograph out. They've, they've put all their evidence out against him. And he's, he's never going to see a US courtroom, is he? Let's face it. No. So there's a limited amount they could do. However, however, what these indictments do and what these criminal complaints do and what these research reports do very, very effectively is burns down um, North Korea's computer hacking architecture, its infrastructure. So, you know, as soon as all these Twitter accounts they're using or the, the email accounts or the viruses they're using, as soon as those get exposed, those weapons are then useless uh, in, in the future. So the more the, the, the victims, the more the accusers can do to sort of say, well, look, here's how we were hit. Here's the stuff we were hit with. The more effective, the more ineffective those become for the attackers, and also other victims can look and think, ah, and think, oh, well, okay, we're going to make sure we don't fall for that phishing email. We're going to make sure that we're protected against that computer virus. So there is stuff that, that the international community can do, can do, and is doing against the North Korean threat. Um, but I have to say, I mean, if you're, you know, making upwards of two billion dollars from computer hacking that's very effective it's a lot of money and if i was the government in north korea i'd be thinking keep going chaps you're doing very well you know yeah i mean make, what's, make what's, us the another what's the downside right you know it's <laughs> yeah <laughs> another yeah. slap on the wrist by by the, the the un or you know the us or you know whatever um yeah. two billion dollars sounds pretty nice how what's your sense in terms of the number of hacks that go what's the word kept secret because you know mm. Again, having lived in Japan, um, you know, the uh, corporate directors do not like to go to the news and mm. say, here's some bad news. Um, and mm. they, you know, oftentimes will look for any way possible to kind of not publicize things. Um, what's your sense? Oh, God, it's a really good question. Um, you know, look, it's like an iceberg. The bit above the water is always going to be smaller than the bit below the water. Mm -hmm. Um, um it's got harder recently, hasn't it? I mean, GDPR, the 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 EU data protection regulations, Requires, made it harder. Yeah, yeah, have made it harder to for organisations to, to to not fess up. I mean, if you have an attack and you don't confess it to the data watchdog in the UK or in other, whatever, whatever other European country you're in, um, the fine's hefty and the fine will get worse if you didn't 
fess up. So that's forced a lot of organisations to come clean. However, they're coming clean to the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK or whatever data watchdog it is. You know, they're not coming clean to me as a journalist or to the public or necessarily to their, to their customers. Um, so look, inevitably, you know, more cyber attacks are going to be secret and not exposed than, than, than are exposed. Um, but I, I, impossible to put a figure on, I'm afraid. Yeah, a couple of years ago, uh, it was, yeah, just just a little a little over two years ago, I think Cathay Pacific um, had one of their customer databases compromised. Oh, you yes, know, yes, yeah. yeah, and they sat on that for mm, about eleven right. months, mm. and and then what happened is the people who that were supposed to be reporting this um, were possibly going to be held up on criminal charges, not just being fined, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but but I, you know. Again, there are. I think there are different shades of compliance depending on which country you're in. And I'm, I, you know, I, I had a conversation with a, the head of of uh, IT for a. I was about a 2.5 billion dollar uh, organization in Japan, and we had made some recommendations in terms of, you know, maybe your global admins uh, should have multi-factor authentication turned on, mm. and maybe you only have give them global access. Um, when they need it, so that if if their credentials are compromised, that the you know the hackers wouldn't have global access unless mm, somebody mm. was going to elevate their permissions. There's it's a couple of, like you know fundamental um, security moves that uh, go, go in, are in line with what you just talked about. But with mm. glo global admin, it's particularly important to have a second factor of authentication, um, especially if they're logging in, for example, outside the organization. And it was funny because the guy scratched his head. He's like, yeah, but wouldn't that make their job very difficult? And I was like, nah, it takes, I mean, <laughs> it takes literally another few seconds to, to get that second factor of authentication. And they just considered that too kind of onerous and didn't mm -hmm. want to implement. And, and so you see, wow, I mean, this is a $2.5 billion organization and they've got, yeah. you know, facilities all across the country, some outside of Japan. And, and there's every time you have another facility, another location, that's another vector for attack. Right. Mm. And, and um, they just weren't willing to do it. And it's so that I, I look at something like that. It's just a matter of time before they get hit. But then are they going to report? And I, I just I just wonder in some countries that, you know, they're paying these ransoms and not saying a word, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hey, do you have any, um, uh, you know, obviously your books, but uh, any other books or journalists that that um, whether it's cybercrime or crime in general that you like to follow? Um, it's a very good question. I think that the Wired um, articles are really, really good. The Wired long reads. Um, mm -hmm. So Andy Greenberg's stuff is always really good. Um, and he's got a new book coming out. He's a Wired journalist who wrote a book called Sandworm, mm -hmm. um, which is about Russian attacks, Russian originated, we think, attacks on energy infrastructure. So these were sort of the, the, the legendary Ukrainian blackout attacks, which actually yeah. switched, off, switched off the power in Ukraine. It's obviously worth reading at the moment. And he's got a new one out, which is about um, how US uh, officials and actually various law enforcement officials cracked into and managed to track down a bunch of people behind um, a paedophile network that was using cryptocurrency to disguise the transactions and how cryptocurrency actually helped law enforcement track these track these guys down and track their funds down. So that's going to be really, really good. Kim Zetta, another wire, another wire journalist. I'm not plugging for Wired. I've got no affiliation. Um, but <laughs> Kim Zetta wrote a book called Countdown to Zero, which is all about um, Stuxnet, which was the virus which infected an Iranian uh, uh, nuclear refinement facility. Um, mm -hmm. And that's absolutely that's absolutely astonishing. Yeah, one of the, I'd the classic I'd recommend for anybody who's after just a, a ripping tale is The Cuckoo's Egg by Clifford Stoll. Um, he was an IT worker. This was back in the 90s, I think it was, 80s, actually. Um, and he just spotted a discrepancy and managed to untangle this bizarre 
uh, story of cybercrime and, and cyber espionage that led right to the top tiers of the US government. It was it's an absolutely ast- still an absolutely astonishing book. So yeah, in addition to my own, I'd recommend uh, recommend those guys. But uh, plenty. Well, out that, there. that's that's interesting. And thanks for the recommendations. Um, it, in terms of Clifford Stahl, and then it, it, you know what Snowden uh, kind of revealed, it, it was a different, similar. Um, it, very, very different. Yeah, Clifford Stoll was revealing um, attempts to infiltrate U.S. military infrastructure. Oh, by, yeah. What we think is 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 what Russian computer hackers. <laughs> very, very early Russian computer hackers in the 80s. Obviously, what Snowden revealed was a was a was kind of almost the other way around, I suppose. <laughs> I, 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 and I just mis, misunderstood what you said. I thought it was um, you said it was activities by the U.S. government. It was activities um, targeting the U.S. government. Targeting right? the U.S. government, yes. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Okay. Well, hey, thanks for those recommendations. And and the one last question. I mean, since we um, I just brought up Snowden, um, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, in terms of. Do, do we have the full story? Um, and do, do you, you know, he, he's obviously, I think he's still in Russia, right? Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you do you ever see in, in the circles that you travel? I mean, how is he thought of? And do you see any kind of resolution ever happening? It's him? a really interesting one. Yeah. I mean, I've actually interviewed Edward Snowden a couple of times at various conferences. He is still in Russia. Um, there is, there was talk about his visa at some stage coming to an end. There was also talk as to whether the US government would pardon him. Um, and obviously Hillary Clinton having a sort of certain input into that as to how that would work out um, uh, and the sort of democratic government. But um, it, it's an interesting question as to what sort of happens with him. In terms of the fallout from his stuff, um, I, I sort of feel like the US government reacted a bit more strongly than the UK government did, because it was mainly UK and certainly our interest, UK-US relations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the US, I felt like there was a bit more of an, a sense of taking that stuff seriously. However, um, you know, you still have secret courts that will sign off warrants. You know, you still have the architecture of the state um, that's able to do sort of state level surveillance. And there's still this this aspect, as far as I'm aware, which is that, you know, spying on non-US citizens is OK to do. And for the UK, you know, spying on non-UK citizens is OK to do. And there was this lovely little sort of fudge they came up with in the middle where they were able to do each other's, you know, <laughs> frankly, each other's dirty work, right. <laughs> you know. Utilising those those loopholes, uh, so I'm I'm not entirely sure, certainly from, from the UK's perspective, whether much changed. And, and what I felt what we needed was some kind of general public oversight of what our intelligence agencies were doing. I understand you can't tell the general public all of the secret stuff the intelligence agencies do, but on a broad level, if you map out, you know, this is the capability that we'd like to have. I think something the general public would be shocked by that and say, well, hang on, you can't. You know, hack into people's personal email accounts, you know, to, to do X, Y and Z. Um, so I, f- I do feel like in the UK, we, we haven't really fully, fully finished that debate. I think there's still debate to be had about um, about how our intelligence agencies work and how surveillance on mass works. Because obviously in the age of the Internet, mass surveillance is, is far more possible than it was uh, in years gone by. Yeah, it's interesting in the U.S. because public sentiment seems to be divided very, very sharply, either in terms of, you know, what he did. He's a patriot. And mm. and then um, then there's a, the, the equally just super strong visceral kind of no, he's a traitor. Yes, and exactly. it's yeah. and the, the 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 interesting thing is that the people that tend to say, you know, um, you know, the they're government conspiracists and you know the government's out there to take advantage of us so we need to support somebody like trump who's an outsider who can drain the swamps whatever who these people who are already convinced that the government um is up to no good at pretty much everything 
tend to be the ones that also say that Snowden is a traitor. And I'm like, mm, well, yes, you know, so it's, yes, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's there, you know, so it's, it's kind of this, we support all, we, we, we don't trust the government, except maybe the military. Um, because yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yes, and super, yes, that's the patriotic thing to do. And I, I'm like, don't you see the kind of contradiction here? Mm, uh, but no, yeah, yeah. 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 So, well, hey, speaking, I mean, I, what I would say about the Snowden stuff is, 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 if everything Snowden had revealed was okay with the public, it wouldn't have gotten to be a news story. You know, the, the Guardian, you know, would have put it out in the UK and other outlets around the world, and people would have shrugged and gone, oh, well, that's all right then. The fact that there is, as you say, a section of society that was incensed by that. And also a section of society that was that was fine with it and thought, yes, this is what we do. What that says to me is there's a debate. There's a debate sure. to be. It's not like society has one opinion or it's all fine. There is there is different views. And so the very fact that Snowden stories became stories indicated to me that there was differences of opinion and that we needed to talk about that and have an open conversation about it. Um to, to decide what was okay, you know, what is okay for us to do. And that has to happen to our politicians. That's what we elect them for in, dem in democracies to, to speak for us. And so I felt people were saying, well, you know, this, this no one should just get back in his box and shouldn't have talked about any of this. <laughs> I'm like, well, if people hadn't reacted, you know, to, to it, then it wouldn't be a story. The fact it's a story means it, it's something that people care about and, and don't always agree with. So. That's what and, I learned, and, and, and maybe we just become habituated to it and and numb to it. And after a while, mm. it does become the new normal. I mean, if awesome. you talk to people in China, they, they know what the government's up to, but they're like, mm. you know, our, our lives are better than they were before. And, you know, it's yes, like, you know, <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, it's, it'll be interesting to see which direction we go. So what's um, uh, what's up or what, what future plans do you have? Um, so I'm still working on the second series of the Lazarus Heist. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. The, the podcast series that went out on the BBC last year. Um, there's going to be a second series of that podcast later this year. I'm sort of saying October, be about October time. So series one stopped in 2017. The, the, the story stops there. The book, which is going to be out on June the 9th, um, fills in the sort of in, ensuing sort of five years. But series two of the podcast goes even a bit further than that and fills in even more of the gaps because the Lazarus Group, according to the investigators, tracking it has, has, has not slowed down and has, has, has sped up. So second series of the Lazarus Heist. And I'm also um, uh, hoping to write another book. And what I'm concentrating on this time is is money laundering and how technology has, has revolutionized the art of money laundering. That's uh, definitely topical, and um, I look forward to the podcast. I'm going to put links to your books, the podcast, um, and what else should we link to in the show notes? <laughs> books and the podcast is fine for me. That's all, all good. That's awesome. Well, hey, Jeff, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I uh, look forward to your podcast and wish you the best for the remainder of 2022. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Take care. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.